Throughout history, witchcraft and sorcery has had some foothold in everyday society, where for the most part, it has been viewed as an evil practice, a pastime of the truly wicked and an art form by the sinful and the corrupt. History has shown us how society has treated the witch, he or she who was often incongruent with religious belief, and more often than not, tortured and killed. But in a more primitive time, the witch and their sorceries were likely tolerated out of fear, and whilst the presence of such an uncanny individual might have been unsettling, superstition would see the witch unhindered within their community, and maybe even revered. But as society progressed, precautions were established against such superstitions, one such precaution being a deity or deities who could protect them from such dark powers. The most common deity that springs to mind is of course the Christian god, and with the once influential power of the church, saw Europe inspired to hunt and purge the once purportedly real threat of witches, wizards, and black magic. Many of these hunts were fueled by hysteria, steered by a sneaky political narrative, or orchestrated by various communities to see their less liked neighbours hanged or burned. But witchcraft was most certainly not compatible with the dominance of Christianity throughout Europe, most notably in the 15th century onwards, and in a time where being either Protestant or Catholic was punishable by death, depending on which you were, being a witch or showing any interest in the occult was arguably an even worse offence. But despite the strict punishments for dabbling in the dark arts, people still could not resist from casting spells, mixing potions, or doing the conjurings of the devil. At least, that's the narrative that was being driven home at the time. Whilst it's true a lot of the witchcraft trials were a bit of a sham, as far as actual witchcraft goes, many did believe that these people being condemned were agents of the devil, or that they were capable of dark magic that could work in bringing about destruction, disease, and even death. With the increase of such activity, it certainly would have been handy for the church and local governments to have something of a guideline that assisted them in identifying, interrogating, and convicting these witches. And luckily, or unluckily, such a guideline was produced in the form of a German treatise in 1486 by one inquisitor named Heinrich Kramer. The treatise was known as the Malleus Maleficarum, or perhaps more appropriately known as the Hammer of Witches. Not only was its intended use geared towards condemning witches, but it also sought to endorse the examination of witches, and to highlight them as a palpable threat to not just Christianity, but society in general. The treaty sought to expose witchcraft for its heretical nature, and for those practicing witchcraft to be prosecuted as such, heretics. With this, the book promoted extreme prejudice 
against those who were accused, and highly recommended torture to be used to obtain confessions of guilt. Once obtained, death was usually the penalty. For the Malleus Maleficarum argues in various sections that death was the only cure for the evils of a witch. A heretic, or a witch, by this logic, could not be redeemed in the eyes of God, and once they had entertained the workings of the devil, they were in essence corrupted, and could only be cleansed by being burned at the stake. The treatise would gain considerable traction in the years after its publication, and while some were condemning of its recommendations of brutality and unchristian methods, others were more prepared to implement the Malleus Maleficarum as a legitimate means to accuse and interrogate a suspected witch. Those which continued long into the 17th century, nearly 200 years after it had even been penned by Kramer. You might say that by this, Kramer was most certainly responsible for many of the brutal executions that many were succumbed to, and that his writing of this book brought about a lot of unnecessary death. So what would drive a man to write such a thing? Some accounts indicate that after failing to prosecute witches in the late 15th century, he was dismissed by the local bishop, who after coming to learn of Kramer's extreme ideas, deemed him to be a madman. With this, Kramer was thought to have written the Malleus Maleficarum out of revenge, and to see to it that witches, those who he believed to be women more than men, would not escape his prosecutions so easily in the future, and that he wasn't a madman, but instead someone who understood that witchcraft was real, and needed to be exterminated. However, it should be noted that some historians dispute the relevance of the Malleus Maleficarum, believing that whilst it became something of a handbook for secular courts, it was not used by the Inquisition in an official capacity. So whilst Kramer's ideas can seem alarming, it is unknown how much of it was really adopted into the accusing and punishing of witches, nor whether Kramer was responsible for certain practices and ideas, those which may have been shaped by those in power thereafter. The purpose of this series is to analyse less of the man behind the words, but more so the ideas he wrote about those which extend to how witches can be identified, how they can be tortured, and what he believed their powers to be. Each chapter is broken down into questions that Kramer asks, for which he then attempts to supply the answer to. It should also be noted that the Malleus Maleficarum is not by any means an easy read, and given that it is impossible for me to read the original Latin, I have taken much of the information presented in these episodes from the translations by Montague Summers and Christopher Mackey. Whilst these two translations appear to be two of the most acclaimed, I found several discrepancies in their work, and whilst this might be down to the original hypocrisies and inconsistencies of Kramer, it does prove to be quite a confusing document. With that being said, no translation is ever going to be perfect, and so, I implore you to give the book a read yourself, where you can derive your own conclusions. In the first chapter, or question, 
Kramer asks whether the belief that there are such beings as witches is so essential a part of the Catholic faith that obstinacy to maintain the opposite manifestly savours heresy. And yes, that is a bit of a mind-boggling question. But put simply, Kramer is asking whether the ignorance of witchcraft or the denial of witchcraft allows heresy to prosper and whether those who are disbelievers of witchcraft are complicit in sin. He recognised that the belief in witches was not Catholic doctrine and that those who did believe in a witch's ability to perform certain spells, most notably the transformation of a human into something better or worse, were indeed pagans themselves, for he believed it was only God who could transform a person into something else, and to believe that witches possessed this power as well was not only absurd, but also disrespectful of the Lord. He tells us, Whoever believes that any creature can be changed for the better or the worse, or transformed into another kind of likeness, except by the creator of all things, is worse than a pagan and a heretic. He continued that despite how compelling the spells of the witches may have been, none of their magic was permanent. He justifies this by comparing the witches to demons, and that the devil himself did not have such power for if he did, he probably would have won his eternal battle against humanity by now. Therefore, if the devil's magic was not as potent, then how could a mere witches be? No operation of witchcraft has a permanent effect among us, he tells us. And this is the proof thereof, for if it were so, it would be affected by the operation of demons. But to maintain that the devil has power to change human bodies, or to do them permanent harm, does not seem in accordance with the teaching of the church. It's an interesting assessment by Kramer, who we can see recognised the limit of sorcery in the real world. At this stage of writing, he didn't seem to be too lost in his own rage that he started fancifying the facts, but instead sought to demystify the witch, by providing real-world context that reduce their magical abilities. He goes on to provide examples of common superstitions, stating that often, people can be quick to assume witchcraft has struck them, when in actuality, a person may simply be suffering from a health crisis, a state of sickness, or some form of natural ailment. Whilst this seems like good sense, he does also note that his reasoning for thinking this isn't because it is the most logical conclusion, but instead that the devil is not as powerful as God, and to even ponder on this by believing that people were being struck down by evil forces implied that God was not capable of doing his job, or that God was not capable of protecting the people from the darkness of sorcery, a belief that he maintained was unlawful in itself. Kramer then spent a part of this chapter talking about demons, and that magicians, interestingly shifting his focus from the female variety of witches to the males, have the ability to read the stars, and with this ability, they are able to evoke demons. Because demons here are believed to be subservient to certain influences of the stars, magicians are detailed as being able to anticipate how they will move, 
and by what effect these evil creatures would have on the earth. However, he also emphasizes that the demons have very little power, and that their effect, much like witchcraft, cannot be maintained in a permanent sense. With this established, the translation by Christopher Mackey tells us that Kramer then considered other ideas shared by his contemporaries, and those who had come before him, noting that some believed that the evils that were conducted, those which he refers to as sorceries and witchcraft, could simply be explained by some unknown yet logical means. Another idea proposed was that whilst it was believed demons cooperated with sorcerers, their magic was not very potent, if at all. Another idea is that there was no demonic magic at all, nor were there any people who were actually capable of manipulating said magic to cast spells, curses, or anything else, and that these elements were merely figments of an overactive imagination. With these ideas, Kramer considered them to be all contrary to the true faith, which he stated taught believers that certain angels had fallen from heaven and had become evil. These fallen angels were thought to be equipped with fantastical powers that we as humans do not possess, and that because the rebellion in heaven which caused these angels to fall was not God's intention, it dismissed an idea that God allowed evil to happen. It also dismissed the idea that sorcery and witchcraft were figments of the imagination, for Kramer believed these angels did indeed possess some dark ethereal power, that which would influence or inspire the witchcraft that plagued his time period. Towards the end of the chapter, Kramer, having believed to have made a decent enough distinction between those who believe in witchcraft and those who dispute it as imaginary, proposes how to deal with witches. He tells that witches are to be avoided at all costs, but perhaps more pressingly, that they should be killed for their dealings with the devil, those which can bring about real harm to innocent, God-fearing people. He states, For the divine in many places commands that witches are not only to be avoided, but also they are to be put to death, and it would not impose the extreme penalty of this kind if witches did not really and truly make a compact with devils in order to bring about real and true hurts and harms. He notes that whilst this might seem harsh, the death penalty is exactly what the witch deserves, but also because it is, in essence, a precautionary effort by society, to put an end to the potential spells and curses said witch had costed. He is also seen to condemn not just the witches, but also the wizards and charmers, where he cites biblical passages in Deuteronomy that justify the destruction of magic users and those who seek counsel from them. He also quotes from Levictus, saying, The soul which goeth to wizards and soothsayers, to commit fornication with them, I will set my face against that soul, and destroy it out of the midst of my people. He also continues, A man or woman, in whom there is a pythonical or divining spirit dying, let them die. They shall stone them, 
those persons are said to be pythons in whom the devil works extraordinary things. Mackey's translation delves deeper into Kramer's thoughts on the punishments that should have been delegated to witches if one was merely suspected of witchcraft, or if they had not confessed yet. In these circumstances, the accused would be denied the Eucharist, particularly if their accusations were particularly severe. If they were lower in notoriety, then 40 days of penance would be imposed. If the criminal happened to be a cleric, however, he was to be deposed from his position and confined to a monastery where his reputation would forever be tarnished. From there, those who were accused would then not be allowed to accuse others. But for those who were outrightly convicted, Mackey quotes from the Code of Justinian, a codification of Roman law from the 6th century that sums up Kramer's opinion on the matter concisely. He states, No one is allowed to practice divination, otherwise he shall be thrown down and suffer execution through the vengeance of the sword. Yet despite reassuring the reader earlier that the power of the devil is temporary and subtle, Kramer warns that it should not be underestimated, for there did exist sorcerers and magic users who were exceptionally talented in channeling their power and using it to produce real and extraordinary effects. He also mentions that in these instances, God does not disarm the sorcerer in question, but instead allows these transgressions to take place, though he does not provide any reasons why. Here he references 12th century theologian Peter Lombard in his Four Books of Sentences, telling us, The writings of many doctors upon Book 2 of the Sentences may be consulted, and it will be found that they all agree that there are wizards and sorcerers who by the power of the devil can produce real and extraordinary effects, and these effects are not imaginary, and God permits this to be. Mackey makes notes of the references to Dominican philosopher Thomas Aquinas in his commentary of pronouncements, telling us that another way that sorcery can maintain a permanent hold is if a spell is cast upon a marriage that has not been consummated. There it can cause conflict between the husband and wife, and ultimately sever their union. Mackey also cites Italian canonist Henry of Segusio, Italian jurist Geoffrey of Trani, and Dominican friar Saint Raymond of Peniafort, who also hold this view, and they held no doubt that sorcerers and witches were able to hex a marriage into failing, and that this could be achieved singularly or by entering into an agreement with a demon. However, he also notes that this particular spell was not often supported by a demon, since most marriages took place in churches, and thus were consecrated grounds. Instead, this sort of sorcery was prone to befall those who did not marry in the church, usually those who were infidels, and that this was the case because the demons perceived them as being fair game. He then provides us with an example from French theologian Peter de Palud in his own commentary of pronouncements, where he speaks of a man who had betrothed himself to an idol, but was also engaged to marry another woman. 
Because of his previous betrothing to this idol, he was selected by the devil to be cursed, where he was plagued with erectile dysfunction and thus was never able to consummate his marriage. Historically, we understand that the majority of the accused were women, and it might be argued that this was fine with Kramer, given that he detested the women who he'd failed to personally condemn. Whilst his views towards women cannot be completely unpicked, though he does refer to them as pythons, those who the devil speaks to and manipulates, we can decipher some of his attitude through Mackie's interpretation, where he continues to quote from the Code of Justinian, telling us, There are also others who prey on the lives of the innocent through the magical art, and turn the minds of women to lust, and these people are exposed to the beasts. So interestingly, Kramer does not accuse women as being the originators of this sin, but instead frames them as being more susceptible to magical persuasion than men. With this quote, he acknowledges that those who are responsible for the corruption of these women have been exposed to beasts, and that they are the ones to be detested, perhaps more so than the women who are preyed upon. He's also seen to agree with the equal interrogation of man and woman, as he continues from the Code of Justinian, and regardless of status, everyone is subject to the questioning under torture, and whoever is convicted, even if he reveals his own crime, is to be handed over to the rack, and is to endure penalties worth of his crime, when claws lacerate his sides. You'll notice that the Code of Justinian is acknowledged as describing a man being tortured and killed for his involvement in sorcery, furthermore suggesting that Kramer did believe that men were entirely capable of these dark arts too. Further notes in this section by Mackey from the Code of Justinian see Kramer speak of how it is prohibited for anyone to participate in the execution of the convicted other than the executioner, and that no one should have been allowed to approach the convicted or interact with them at all. Should they do so, they were subject to lose their property and become exiled. You might also be wondering how Kramer believed someone should have been convicted of witchcraft, and what was necessary to determine them as guilty of heresy. Well, in Mackey's translation, we are told that one can be convicted in three typical means. Either they were caught preaching heresy, were witnessed to have conducted sorcery by a number of witnesses, or they had confessed under their own guilt. Mackey also identifies in Kramer's writings that there were four things that the church should have been preaching at the time four things that should have been paramount in order to better prevent the gradual rise of witchcraft and the influence of the devil. Firstly, the idea that there could only be one god should have been hammered home, for this would accentuate god's importance and steer people away from the likes of the devil. Secondly, those who rode on horseback with Diana or other mythological figures were actually riding with the devil, who took these forms to lure men away from God. 
Thirdly, if one is to find themselves with the likes of Diana, they should be aware that this was a fantasy, and that this was the devil, having already infiltrated one's mind. The fourth point was that everyone should obey God, and in this, they wouldn't have to worry about the dangers of sorcery at all. Whilst this is only the first chapter of the Malleus Maleficarum, and perhaps one of the more tamer chapters, we can still identify some pretty dangerous ideas that Kramer had put forth. In his zealous-like attitude towards witches, he proposes the idea that not antagonizing witches, not recognizing their threat, or choosing to not even believe in them is unchristian, and those that do not are just as bad, if not worse, than the pagans themselves. He questions the morality of those who do not agree with his evident disdain of witches, and seeks to categorize these people as sinners as well. You might say that his words are quite Machiavellian, in the way he coerces his audience into hating another group of people, under the guise that it is what their god would have wanted, and that it was the morally right thing to do. We come to understand his violent, unyielding attitude towards how witches should be punished, and that they should be met with extreme prejudice, given their unlawful ways. And furthermore, there are some brief descriptions of the demons, which Kramer believed inhabited the world around him, and that the witches were in cahoots with these creatures, working in tandem to fulfill the wishes of their master Satan. All in all, the very first chapter of this deeply disturbing book is already alight with some potent and shocking ideas that only seem to intensify from chapter to chapter. As we continue forth, we'll dive deeper into more specific ideas that Kramer had, those which include the identification of specific demons, the rituals which is conducted, as well as Kramer's own morbid psychology, that which would help shape the narrative towards the persecution of witches. <laughs>